Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. Let's go back to basics for a minute. Training sessions are commonly prescribed with the goal of stimulating adaptations that will improve your performance on the bike. When it comes to prescription, they are commonly based on four main principles, frequency, duration, volume, and intensity. The first three of these principles are relatively simple and agreed upon. For example, frequency is changed by manipulating the number of training sessions per week. But when it comes to exercise intensity, oh boy. And that's rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole because there's controversy and little agreement on the best methods to determine exercise intensity. For example, many people don't realize there's controversy around setting intensity just based off a percentage of FTP. If only it was that simple. And without a reliable method to determine exercise intensity, not only do you get suboptimal exercise prescriptions, you're simply not going to get a proper stimulus. But there's also knock-on effects like not modeling an accurate training load. This controversial subject needs just the right person to take us through the topic, a sports scientist who is not overly shy about his opinions in training and endurance sports. When FTP was started, it was a cult, but as we know, all religion, yeah. all religion is a cult plus time. <laughs> who is this guy and why should we even listen to him? Well, a few months ago, Jason read a paper about exercise intensity in training zones so crazy that he had to call the first author directly to hear about it firsthand. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the podcast where scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. And this is part one of a two-part show. In part one, we're covering a study about using graded exercise tests to determine lactate threshold. And the punchline of this study, which I'll tell you now, is out of the 14 methods used in this study to calculate lactate threshold, many of the traditional methods were not valid, including the commonly used OBLA 4 millimole. And it also became apparent from this study that both VO2 max and lactate threshold cannot be determined in a single graded exercise test. Ouch. Quick note here, before you think these findings are only relevant to sports scientists working in a lab and elite coaches, consider this. With the popularity of smart trainers and the availability of inexpensive blood lactate monitors, this type of testing can now be done by individual cyclists in their own home. And only take a quick look at the Twitter sphere and cycling forums to see that this is actually becoming a trend. We discuss the usefulness of this a little later on in this episode. And in part two, we really get into the controversy of exercise intensity with a review that examines and critiques current methods of determining exercise intensity. A must listen to arm yourself with the best review that we've read on the topic. Okay, so who is this mystery sports scientist? Well, considering this interview was his first podcast interview ever, you may never have heard of him. He's an early career researcher, as Jason puts it. And you'll understand why that's important after getting a taste of his enthusiasm for the topics he's talking about. And as I said in the intro, Jason tracked him down after reading one of his papers, which was handy because they're from the same area in the US. We're also from the Midwest. We're both from the Midwest, so maybe we'll talk in our native tongue here. How you going there, um, Nick? Uh, up there, uh, did you get some beer and uh, 
go out on the pier and uh, spend some time on the boat. How'd it go there? Oh, yeah, we went out to the lake today, caught a few walleye, had a few brewskis, you know, just watching life going by out there on that lake. You'll be glad to know that this didn't go on for the whole interview. But okay, this mystery sports scientist is Dr. Nicholas Jamnik. Nicholas is the first guy we've brought on the podcast that none of us know personally. So I came across your review from 2018, a couple months ago. And I, I know we'd been hitting kind of threshold stuff and exercise domains and blood lactate testing a lot on the show. But when I read your review, I was like, I can't help myself. Like, I have to bring him on because it's just such a good like recap. Um, Damien used the word brutal in describing it. <laughs> like, it's just such an eye-opening review. And your other research there with the graded exercise tests and blood lactate, that was actually really good too. We will get to why I call this review brutal. But first, let's back up here. I think it's important to get an idea of where Nick is coming from to really understand why he has no problem challenging commonly held beliefs, which is a common theme that you'll hear throughout the episode. Nick comes from an endurance sport. No, not triathlon. He was a distance runner. And it was this interest in endurance sports that led him to study an exercise science degree, running in the track and field and cross-country program and studying at Minnesota State University in Mankato. That was my prediction. I was like, Minnesota, he's a cross-country runner. Classic story. <laughs> yeah, Minnesota has a very good cross-country distance running. Apparently, another classic thing to do as a runner is live with your teammates. When you're running cross-country track in the United States, a cliche is to live in a house of like with seven to ten guys in a, you know, it's a seven to ten bedroom house. That's just what cross-country distance runners do at American universities, and that's what we mm -hmm. did. Yeah. And two of the guys that I was yeah. living with, they were both in the, the program, but they were like a year or two ahead of me. And they were going to do this research study with one of the professors, the three-minute all-out test paper from 2012, where we mm -hmm. actually did this study with the female distance runners at Minnesota State. And they were going to go do it. I'm like, well, I'm going to go do that too. I'm gonna, and I just like literally just leached on. I didn't even mm -hmm. ask permission. I just went with them. I'm like, I'm an exercise science dude. I want to see what research is about. And I just kind of weaseled. I literally just forced my way into this like collaboration. And what ended up happening was that those two guys ended up like stepping aside. And then I became like kind of their research assistant or undergraduate researcher involved with the project with me, a grad student, and then the main professor, Robert Pettit like the main author on the paper is the first author on that paper from 2012 and that's kind of how I formed that relationship with him as I just stayed consistent and just kept being involved in it. There's two parts in what Nick just said that I want to highlight here. The first, not asking for permission and forcing his way in and then staying consistent enough to become the official research assistant for this study sounds like the definition of grit to me. The second part is the importance of relationships, relationships with his supervisors and other sports scientists. Nick just mentioned Professor Robert Pettit, and he also spent time with adjunct Professor Timothy Noakes in South Africa. And then when he wanted to continue studying, he came across this guy named David Bishop, sent him an email. We Skyped two days later, and then like four months later, got the offer, a full scholarship to come and study. And that's how I ended up here. Did my PhD with him at Victoria University, and now I'm just doing a postdoc yep. at Deakin just in Geelong. So, yeah, that's the whole arc of how I got into it. <laughs> Professor David Bishop supervised his PhD and is a well-known name in muscle exercise physiology with more than 250 publications to date. 
This is important to know for a couple of reasons. The first is the two papers that are discussed in part one and part two are under the supervision of David Bishop. And the second, well, it has to do with Nick and his willingness to question everything and everyone, including his supervisor, which is exactly what he did in the study we're discussing on today's episode. The study is called Manipulating Graded Exercise Test Variables Affects the Validity of the Lactate Threshold and VO2 Peak. It's open to everyone, and you can find the link in the show notes, and it's well worth following along if you can. Because there's actually some really good figures in here, I think, and for, for, to facilitate the discussion. So I really like this experiment because, again, in its own experiment, in its own right, outside of that very comprehensive review you wrote, it just kind of shines this light on like how much we've just assumed things would work. But like once you actually do some science to, to validate it and look at it more specifically, you just find that a lot of the basic practices in sports sciences are taken for granted to an extent, depending on what we're looking at. And it's crazy to me that like you know the literature better than I would. But it's crazy to me that it's taken this long for this study or a study like this to come out uh, or it took this long. But yeah, it's just crazy to find that how many things didn't work out in this study. But like, yeah, so why don't you give us study background, purpose, why you guys conceived this? It seemed like it was a big group effort from all the authors there in terms of like input. But yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, so David Bishop's a big proponent of the lactate threshold. It's something that he published the modified DMAX paper back in 98. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of his his baby. And I kind of propose these questions like we were using the GXT four-minute stages and the modified DMAX method. That was kind of what we used at Victoria University when I got there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, why this one? I mean, it's just, it was because, again, it was the validity was for an hour. It was like associated with an hour time trial cycling performance. So then, you know, yeah. I kind of posed the question. It's like, we got to associate this with, I don't like the term, but the gold standard in lactate threshold testing, mm-hmm. which is the maximal at the steady state, which, you know, we get to that later. Why I think that has problems. At its core, the aim of this study was to determine the validity of the lactate threshold and VO2 max from doing one graded exercise test. But it was also about testing assumptions on lactate threshold measures, especially things like submaximal exercise testing, because most of that stuff just seems to be based on assumptions. For example, when Nick read the original study that suggested 4 millimole for the anaerobic threshold, he was surprised with what he found. When you actually go back and start looking at the literature from the 80s, you know, for example, the the best one is the 4 millimole lactate. I mean, Mm -hmm. 4, it's in the textbooks, it's everywhere. But if you look at the 1985 paper, 86, I can't remember the year, by heck at all, and they say, this is just the mean. This shouldn't be used as a determinant (laughs) for determining (laughs) exercise intensity. They state that because they also find that it was four millimole for three, I think it's for three minute stages in their GXTs, but then it was three and a half for five minute, but like four became gospel. And it's just, so a lot of it is based on assumptions, a lot of things just, and then a lot of inconsistency. So, and we'll talk about it. It's just, there's a million ways to do a lactate threshold. There's actually, you know, six ways to do a gas exchange threshold. You know, now there's even, you know, critical power and critical testing critical power, the bouts, how many of you do that, the times you do that. Like there's just a lot of indiscrepancies in the field and everyone has their own preferred method and it just seems to then just get propagated out and then everyone just says what they're doing is of fact. So it's like 30 different methods for lactate threshold can't be the lactate threshold. That's impossible. (laughs) 
And that's really awesome that, that you bring that up about that paper. It's like, even the original paper says don't use it. It's fine. I, I remember <laughs> that's I, amazing. I was actually at a, like a conference. It was, I don't know. It was actually somebody was presenting. And it was a small group. And they said four millimole lactates like that threshold. And I was like, where do they get four from? I raised my hand. And they like everyone looked at me like I was the stupid one for asking. That yeah, question. yeah, like, exactly. But it's just a number. It means nothing. It's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and at this point, I've got to say, to me, the reason Nick even did this study is great science. It's like a real search for the truth. Because not only is he willing to question things like the four millimole threshold measure and find out he was right, he was willing to question other measures like the modified DMAX method, which to be clear is also questioning his supervisor, or as he put it, his supervisor's baby. But he didn't stop there. And I was like, well, let's just do all of them. Let's do all the lactate thresholds we can find. Um, that makes sense and kind of have some sort of, you know, that have been, you know, either associated with or been published prior. Even we've made a few of our own. They started with five graded exercise test protocols and 14 common lactate threshold methods, which resulted in 58 unique thresholds. Not all of these made it to the final study and only 11 of these values met their criteria for inclusion. A criteria that was based on criticism. They had looking at a literature is that the the statistical analysis was, you know, my opinion, quite poor. I mean, if you mm -hmm. just, they mainly was p-values and r-values. So if it wasn't mm -hmm. significantly different or had an r-value greater than 0.9, <laughs> even some papers, 0.85, they were happy with it. So what we did is we came up with 14 lactate thresholds, and then we did a GXT. We had three-minute stages, four minutes, seven minutes, and 10 minutes. And what we ended up finding was, of the total, the 56 lactate threshold measures that we analyze across all four GXTs, a lot of them were actually quite good based on the t statistical analysis. But luckily, we could have really stringent statistical criteria to eliminate them. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about like there's a, a paper that's only doing two lactate threshold methods comparing to the maximum stay state. Well, if one's better than the other, then they just concluded that was valid. It's like, well, you're only saying it in reference to the other method because the other methods was crap. So you need to have so we thought this robust 56 of them total, we can then institute a criteria and kind of arbitrary the criteria. We said, okay, of these 56, these nine or 10 were really closely associated. So we'll take a deeper look at these. And to kind of go back to the, the poor statistical analysis bit, of the 56 we had, I think, I can't remember the exact number. I know over 40 of them had an R value of 0.9. <laughs> so... Based on what previous papers would have done, 40 of our lactate thresholds were valid <laughs> based mm -hmm. on the R value, yeah, yeah. which is crazy. Because mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can look at that yeah, yeah. figure in the plus one paper and see that the range is too big for that to be possible. Just in case you didn't catch that, it certainly went over my head in the interview. When they found other studies that compared lactate measures, either comparing one lactate measure to another or to maximal lactate steady state, out of 56 lactate measures, 40 of them had an R value of 0.9. Now the R value is a measure of how well two data sets correlate. It's on a scale between zero and one. And while there is some debate about how to interpret R values, an R value of 0.9 or above denotes a high correlation. But Nick didn't find the same thing. And under his criteria, out of the 56 lactate measures, only nine or 10 were closely associated, not the 40 these studies suggest. 
So basically, after the lactate measures were set, they decided, well, let's just make a pretty big study of this. We'll get you know 17 participants, and I was pretty adamant about getting trained cyclists or at least endurance athletes mm-hmm. that could cycle. The 17 participants made 7 to 10 visits to the lab, where after measuring height and body mass, they completed graded exercise tests of varying stage lengths, 3, 4, 7, and 10-minute stages. Lactate is taken at each of these stages and plotted out on a chart and used to calculate lactate threshold. To check the validity of these calculated thresholds, they compared them to maximal lactate steady state. That's my brief overview. Here's Jason and Nick explaining the process in much more detail. How I would describe it is like you do the test, you do the great exercise test, and you go up every step, and then your, your steps are set for a few amount of minutes or whatever. So you would go up incrementally in a certain amount of watts uh, that you guys were customized. But within that step, at the same point, you would take a blood lactate. And once you have the blood lactates and how they relate to the power, the trick is determining where the lactate breaking points are, so LT1 or LT2. I don't know if you want to use that terminology or not. But the thing is, is that gets really tricky because now you just have these dots on a piece of paper or graphed out in front of you on a screen. And you're like, well, and it's curvilinear, not linear. And the methods really comes down to how you find those thresholds with the raw data that you've been provided. Is that a good way to describe it? You think? Your lactate points, you essentially connect all the dots, you get your nice little lactate curve, which um, you, know, you can just Google images and see exactly what that looks like mm-hmm. if you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then you use this curve and you essentially can either apply some sort of mathematical modeling. So when we say like the DMAX method or the modified DMAX method, anything, that's sort of a mathematical model to determine your lactate threshold. Then there's the oblas where the absolute values, so it's you know one millimole or two, three, three and a half, four, where it's like on the curve, when lactate reaches four millimole, that is your lactic threshold. Or when it reaches two millimole, that is your lactate threshold. Or there's the baseline plus values. So you get your baseline value. And then once lactate goes 0.5 or one millimole or whatever it is above that baseline, that is your lactate threshold. So essentially we said, let's look at all of them and then associate with the entire group, which of these lactate thresholds best coincides with the participants then maximal lactate steady state. And have you guys talked about the maximal lactate steady state before? A little bit, but you go ahead and go over it. Be good because it's considered this gold standard. And I mean, I've mentioned the takedown that uh, Andrew Jones and his cohort has done. Of it. I don't know if you read that review that came out a few years ago, but let's talk about uh, maximal lactate steady state. Yeah. So the maximal lactate steady state, so it's a constant work rate bout, so it's a single intensity. How to describe it is it's the highest intensity you can cycle or run with a plateau and lactate. So the idea is that at your maximal lactate steady state, you'll see this plateau and lactate. But if you go just 5 or 10% above that, you're going to see this continual increase in blood lactate. And you won't be able to meet the 30-minute time requirement of what the test is. And so the criteria Mm -hmm. for this test is that you need to cycle the intensity for at least 30 minutes. This is the traditional criteria. And you need blood lactate can't increase more than one millimole from the 10th minute to the 30th minute. So if it goes above one millimole from 10 to 30 minutes, that's above. And if, if it's less than, you're good to go. And speaking of arbitrary numbers, like no one really knows why those lengths of time were really chosen. From my understanding. Yeah, so the Beneke paper that kind of proposed it was they just did this mathematical modeling. 
mm-hmm. which makes sense because they kind of apply it for the auction and uptake kinetics for like breath by breath stuff. Mm-hmm. But then the 30 minutes mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> the criteria mm-hmm. sort of makes sense, but the 30 minutes does not. Because then there's a paper in, what was it? It was a while ago, like 96, 04, I can't remember the year. And they've shown that you can exceed this criteria, right? You can have an intensity above this where blood lactate increases from one mil, one millimole above one millimole for 10 to 30 minutes. But if you continue the cycle of them to 50 minutes, blood lactate doesn't increase more than one millimole. So it's like, well, how is that not the steady state when we have a steady state yeah. from 30 to 50 minutes, but not from 10 to 30 based on the criteria? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, and then not to get too far off of yeah, when you start comparing it to critical power in terms of the battle of, of what is the better maximal metabolic steady state representation and oh, critical power overestimates MLSS. And you're like, well, maybe MLSS underestimates the MMSS, right? Well, I mean, so, that comes down yeah. to the whole, like, it's just gospel. Like, just say it. Just say this yeah. is the maximal steady state, and then it's truth from here on out. It's like, well, no, you need to, mm-hmm. like, I need evidence, and you need to show me why it is, you know, there's claims, and then there's evidence. Coming up, the chart that demonstrates why so many of the traditional lactate methods are not valid, and some handy practical takeaways, including why Nick doesn't think it's a good idea to test lactate in day-to-day training. I'm just here again taking a quick break to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and remind you that if you find value in the show, it would mean a lot to us if you shared our content with other cycling performance enthusiasts in your life. Also, if you're seeking additional guidance in the world of cycling performance beyond what is delivered in our podcast, we're keen to help you. My co-host and I offer coaching services for cyclists, consulting services for cycling coaches and teams, and our objective is to provide support tailored to your specific goals and increase the level of confidence you have in your cycling performance pursuits. So definitely check us out online and contact us with any inquiries you may have. Links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. In the last show, we talked to ex-professional cyclist and now self-love coach Shannon Molseed about mental wellness and its importance in human performance. Her personal journey highlights the importance of finding joy in the process and people surrounding you in sport. This is a discussion and story that will truly motivate and guide you on your road to achieving your goals on and off the bike. That episode's up now. Check it out where you got this one. Okay, back to Dr. Nicholas Jamnik. At this point in the study, when they're crunching the numbers, one chart emerges that demonstrates why many of the traditional lactate methods are not valid. So if people have a minute to look that up, is that figure one, is that you have one individual here, you have blood lactate curve, and on that curve, you have all the different methods that you've calculated. Now, to me, in an overall kind of response to blood lactate testing, like if the practice was valid, what I would expect to see is that you would have two clusterings of values. But what you have is almost a continuum of basically like anywhere on here. So it's like a bell curve, a nice distribution across the lines. Oh, yeah. It kind of like the unevenly distributed thing where whatever you decided to use to calculate your lactate threshold, it could end up anywhere on this curve. And I think the lowest value for this individual, I'm eyeballing it here, it was probably like 240 
Uh, and then the highest value here was, I'm eyeballing it again, it's probably like 330. But of course, you have the different thresholds that you're trying to measure in there, the first and second, aerobic and anaerobic. But like, there's just a continuum. It's just an eye-opening graph, like right off the bat, figure one, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, what? so if people aren't looking at this, you know, so this one graph shows that the person's maximal at the steady state was 302 watts. But you have a range of lactate threshold from 243 to 338. So you'd say like, oh, I didn't need to eyeball it. <laughs> it's right on the graph. Okay, okay. Sorry. <laughs> you look at that and you say, well, only a few of them matter. So then what we found was when you, this is for, um, this is for four minute stages. Yes, this GX, so this figure is four minutes. So then when you look at, you know, three, seven and 10 minute stages, the ones that are closely associated for the four minute test. So like, for example, the log exponential modified DMAX was 306 watts mm -hmm. versus 302 watts. All right, four watts difference. That's pretty good. But we found when we went to like seven or three minutes from this one, the log exponential modified DMAX would shift by like 20 watts. It shows that it's protocol dependent. So it's not, yeah. right? you don't want, Very protocol. you don't want this value that's like beholden to the protocol. Just quickly for the listeners to jump in, what are you trying to determine? So with those thresholds, why are you trying to determine the MLSS? Like, is this, you're doing this for practical reasons to define the exercise domains for the athlete? Like in the, in the study, I understand, I understand it's just to, to validate these methods, but like why might someone be doing this testing? in a practical study? Oh, why would they need to be accurate? Like, it's like, well, if you're going accurate. to then prescribe yep. training based on yeah. what you assume is your lactate threshold. And your and your assumption is that above this, I'm going to be you know working my you know anaerobic system, if you will, or like depleting my anaerobic stores. W prime or yeah. W prime, if you yeah. will. Yeah. You need to make sure that you're at that intensity. And if you're yeah. if you're underestimating or overestimating, then your training session is going to be too hard. If it's an overestimation yeah. or excuse me, it's underestimation, then your training session is going to be way too easy. You're not going to get a, a proper stimulus. Yeah. So basically, if you're seeing this like 30 watt discrepancy in that instance between depending on how you do the test in the first place, then it's essentially just meaning that it's near on impossible to actually use that to prescribe training then down the line. Well, let's get it, let's get it even more complicated and assume that you do it on a lab bike or a lab ergometer and then you go and use the power meter off of your bike and who knows how accurate your power meter is to the lab power meter. And the there was a paper from Chalmers in 2015. And they shown that even with you control all the variables, that just by like they took some data from pre post training study that they did, and they showed that mm -hmm. you can even use a mathematical model like the Dmax and show that after eight weeks of training, these people would actually show their lactate threshold would go down, which is <laughs> insane because intuitively that's just impossible. Either it's going to stay the same or go up. But they trained for eight weeks and they were like relatively unfit people, so it's it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, you will have an idea that many of the traditional methods were not valid, including the commonly used OBLA 4 millimole. And also, another important finding was that a true VO2 max could not be determined if the graded exercise test steps were longer than one minute, as VO2 max became increasingly lower as the length of the step increased. This means that a one-minute step is too short to determine a proper lactate threshold, and steps longer than one minute are too long to determine a true VO2 max. 
Finally, I'm not sure if it's of direct help to the athlete or the coach, but for the record, the best estimation of MLSS Nick found was the Log Poly Mod DMAX derived from a graded exercise test with a four-minute step duration and wattage increase per step that was customized for the individual athlete. But let's put all that behind us and get to some practical advice. So I'm kind of not really into doing blood lactate testing for cyclists, but for those that are out there that would want to do blood lactate testing or those that um, are maybe trying this at home, I actually have an athlete that's doing that right now. Then to bring to introduce that is that now with the smart trainers, I don't know how much you know about this, Nick, with uh, with your running back being a runner. Um, <laughs> But in the cycling world, now we have smart trainers. And I don't know how accurate these things are yet, but basically you can set them up to do graded exercise tests on them if you want, because you can set the bike into it and it adds resistance. And um, my experience is that for those that are out there, don't use the power that's off of the erg or off the trainer, use the power that's off of your cranks. It's going to be much more accurate um, and much more reliable, I would say. Anyway, so to me, it's kind of opening up a world. Like I'm trying to see if I can do talk tests with my athletes that are online and in different countries. And you see people like uh, Steven Seiler's kind of addressed this and some of his tweets where he's doing blood lactate testing at home. And I think some other people are doing that. So you can almost bring the lab into your house now because of these ergs. So maybe someone out there wanted to spend that money on the little lactate pro analyzer. What's the best way for them to do it? I'll add quickly here that there's been a lot of noise lately around training at lower intensities for endurance and frankly for longevity. And part of this discussion is how to define the intensity you want to spend time riding in. And as Jason mentioned, I'm finding more and more that the idea of doing your own in-home blood lactate measurements is becoming a thing. So to put it bluntly, Nick does not think that this is a good idea day to day. Here's why. So the thing I'll always like criticize about lactate is that day to day, the absolute value is unreliable. So the paper mm-hmm. that showed oh, yeah. the reliability of the maximum to state state showed it was 16% variability in the lactate value itself. But the thing about the change in lactate is, in my experience and for everything I've read, is actually quite reliable. So fitting a lactate curve day after day and getting the you know identical curve and everything can be quite good. So mm-hmm. if you want to determine intensity by lactate, and I observed something sim- like similar, I, I didn't publish the data, but that doesn't mean much to me because I've seen guys where it's three one day, the same intensity, it's the next, it's 3.7 and the VO2 and the heart rate are the same, you know, like it's irrelevant to me. In other words, taking these measurements is not reliable in single training sessions. This doesn't mean there's no value in taking your own lactate for other purposes. So where does he think it is worth it? The only way I would ever employ personally, and I mean, you know, I don't Mm want to, I think there's still a bit of utility in determining your aerobic threshold so LT1, if you will, the transition between moderate and mm. heavy domain. Now the research, you know, my reviewed, it's kind of implied like, look, these might work, but there isn't concrete evidence. But I think that doing graded exercise testing where you're just doing your finger prick lactate, you just do your increments, your at home GXT, and you get up to like two and a half or three lactate. You get enough data points, you can look for that inflection. In my if I had to choose anything Opinion, to determine yeah, my aerobic yeah. threshold, yeah. I would use that. Because no one has a VO2 
at home metabolic cart where they can measure their gas exchange or ventilate threshold. So you need something. I think it's actually quite good for the aerobic threshold. Anything above high intensity, I think lactate's pretty irrelevant in my opinion. So what methods should they use? What should they be approached? What's their steps? How are they setting up that graded exercise test? What method are they using to calculate it? Uh, Well, more data points is best. So I would say you need probably at least four, maybe five baseline values. So if I'm just giving a general recommendation, I don't know. It's hard because I don't know what a good, I'm trying to think. Um, all right. You know, you do like, sorry, say you do, you know, one third of your FTP or whatever you other value have or, and or your critical power. Critical power. We use critical power. Okay. Critical power. <laughs> you do one third. Of, I don't, we do one third of your critical power. You start there. And you go up by 30 watts every four minutes, take your lactate value, and then keep going up until your lactate value gets just above three, and then quit. Because then you have a nice data, mm-hmm. you have enough points above the inflection point, enough baseline, where you can actually sort of see this inflection. And there's plenty of software out there on the internet where you can just do your like your log log or your visual inspection point yourself and determine this is probably a decent estimation of my aerobic threshold. I could probably maybe help you out with some numbers there. So I think with my athletes using this talk test, I start the test at about 55%. And then my my steps are about 5% of their critical power. And then to go off of that, yeah, so once, once you actually find yeah. it, so say your athlete's 300 is their critical power. So they start at 150, 160 watts or whatever it is, and they go up and then they find it. Then you can refine that test. So say you your athletes find that, oh, my aerobic threshold based on this, or I should say transition from moderate to heavy domain. I should be saying that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes, so yes, your transition yes, from no moderate to heavy domain is 210 watts. Okay, now we can refine that. So now if I were to do that test again and say, okay, now we're going to start you at 170 watts and we're going to go up 10 watts every four minutes. And then you say, okay, now the next time they test, it's 230. So then you're starting like four or five, you know, 40 to 50 watts below that. So you're getting a much more accurate representation. All right. So the problem is if you have too big of power jumps, you're not going to know exactly what it is. But if you're doing 10 watt increments and you have an idea where it is, that can be quite useful. Jason was right. Early career researchers bring an enthusiasm and curiosity to sports science that is unmatched. Pair that with established supervisors and excellent research and Nick is the right person doing right things at the right time so that we don't fall into the trap of just going along with commonly held ideas. Especially when it comes to things like testing lactate daily or trying to find your thresholds. We are much better off as cyclists and practitioners for having Nick's research in the performance world. Thank you Nick for jumping on the show. You can reach out to Nick on ResearchGate but we're not done with him yet. In part two we get to that brutal review and I have to say even better than this paper and quite surprising it hasn't got more exposure so you won't want to miss it while you wait for that one check out our last show we talked to ex-professional cyclist and now self-love coach shannon Molseed about mental wellness and its importance in human performance please also make sure you subscribe you follow the podcast in whatever app you use to listen to the podcast go ahead you can find the button in your app it's probably a heart where it says follow or subscribe it's in there somewhere go ahead click it right now while you're listening Please and thank you.